Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt University podcast brought to you by Resolve Asset Management. This is Adam Butler, and I'm Resolve's Chief Investment Officer. Today's conversation is with Marat Maliboga, Chief Risk Officer and Director of Research at Efficient Capital Management. Marat is a Soviet-trained mathematician who achieved his Master's in Applied Mathematics in Moscow and holds an MBA in Finance from the University of Chicago, a CFA, and a PhD in Finance from EdHEC Business School. He has authored or co-authored at least 20 published papers. Efficient Capital Management specializes in building multi-manager investment solutions for institutional investors with a particular focus on managed futures. Marat describes the fundamental building blocks in the qualitative and quantitative framework that Efficient uses to select managers, inform, and monitor portfolios over time. In addition, we explore four papers in detail on topics like combining carry with trend, how the makeup of Chinese commodity markets impacts risk premia for Chinese CTAs, the potential benefits of short-term trend signals, and how novel portfolio construction techniques may help investors construct more resilient portfolios of CTAs. Marat has a unique perspective on commodity trading advisors, and listeners will learn about how institutions utilize and evaluate CTA portfolios and specific techniques that can drive improvements in trend strategies and portfolios of CTA funds. In closing, note that Resolve Asset Management offers mutual funds, hedge funds, and managed accounts in the U.S. and Canada based on the fundamental principles of risk parity, adaptive asset allocation, and machine learning. Check out our strategies, podcasts, white papers, and other research at investresolve.com. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Marat Maliboga. Okay, I'm here with Marat Maliboga from Efficient Capital. Marat, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So Marat, I think you're probably a fairly well-known name in the academic establishment, certainly in certain subdomains of empirical finance, but maybe just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and about Efficient and what you do there. So you might have noticed that I have an accent and it's because I grew up in the Soviet Union. So I'm a Soviet-trained mathematician, which is always a plus, I guess. And uh, I've been with Efficient for quite a while. Efficient, since our very inception, we have been specializing in building multi-manager customized solutions for institutional investors. We allocate about $2 billion to commodity trading advisors around the world. And we serve large institutions, insurance companies, pension plans, family offices, and so on. So that's kind of a quick summary of what you do. So your background then is in mathematics, but then you went on and did a... Is your PhD in mathematics or is it in finance? It's in finance. So I got my master's in financial mathematics first in Moscow. Then I got an MBA in finance, economics, and strategic management from the University of Chicago. Then I got a CFA after that. And after that, a couple of years ago, I got a PhD in finance from Ad Hec Business School. But my 
PhD is more empirical. So like I'd say closely related to applied statistics. I actually, I'm curious, why did you decide to go back and do a PhD in finance after you'd already done a PhD in, was it mathematical finance no, or no, quantitative I, finance? Like or before that, I have a couple of masters before. Oh, yeah, that's I a good see. question okay. though. There are a couple of reasons for that. One, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd at heart and I love learning. Like I love talking to you about research papers and I love when you give me feedback on my research. I love following what other people working on in different areas of finance or mathematics and so on. So I just love learning in general. But two, about six years ago, I started teaching at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology, Stewart School of Business, and I really enjoyed it. And I was thinking that I would like to teach a little bit more. And I think a PhD is helpful for that. And also, frankly, like in my role of director of research, I feel like it's really a requirement to have a PhD because we need to do pretty rigorous research and it does help to go through training to prepare for that. So that was another reason why I did this PhD. Nice. Our head of research, Andrew Butler, is also going through his own PhD in mathematical finance at U of T. Great school. And, yeah, motivated by very similar motivations. So definitely worthwhile. All right. So like you said, you love doing research, discussing research, publishing research. You've published, any idea how many papers? It's got to be six, seven, eight, nine, maybe more than that. Maybe 20 so far. Well, so now this I year, I think four papers came out this year. I've been fortunate. But I mean, just to be fully transparent, I don't do this work on my own. I love learning from other people. I love collaboration. I become a better thinker when I work with others. I learn about different techniques when I work with other people as well. So I really don't, I hardly write any papers on my own. It's, it's highly unusual. Got it. And so we're going to talk about three papers out of the four that you wrote this year. One of those on carry and pairing carry signals with time series momentum, which you wrote with Junkai, who I've collaborated with you and Junkai on a couple of projects, which have been great. And then someone else, Chao Hua He or Hei. Chao Hua He. He's a professor in university in China. Gotcha. So how did you guys connect on this topic? So Junkai was my intern at the time. And I think very highly of him, he's really fantastic at doing any type of empirical work. I have full confidence in the quality of his work. And Chao Hua He, he was actually my TA when I was teaching a class at IIT. And then when he got his PhD, he moved to China and we stayed in touch, we wrote a couple of papers together. For example, we wrote a paper about Chinese commodities, which was actually quite interesting. So it was the first paper we wrote. It came out in the Journal of Commodity Markets. And in that paper, we tried to contrast Western and Chinese commodities, and there are quite a few differences. For example, in China, what we find is that there are a lot of retail investors who participate in the markets, unlike the U.S. In the U.S., there are lots of hedgers that participate. And that really affects the risk premia that we find. Like, for example, there are some very significant term premia that can be captured through calendar spreads in the Western markets, and that's not the case in China. Momentum is extremely strong in Chinese markets as well. So it's kind of interesting to compare some of those risk premia. And it was interesting to see how market participation itself affects what type of risk premium you can actually observe in the market. Anyway, so there was a paper that he and I wrote, and then we wrote this paper about carrying time series momentum, and then we're working on another project as well. Nice. I was actually just reading a paper this morning on differences in momentum and mean reversion character for A shares versus B shares in China. So I guess the majority of A shares are traded by Chinese retail investors, and the majority of B shares are traded by international institutional investors. And 
the A shares are dominated by mean reversion tendencies and the B shares by trending tendencies. And so it sounds like some common threads with your research in commodity markets, which is kind of neat. And then, so the most recent one that you were working on with him and with Junkai was on pairing carry with momentum. So maybe describe the thesis there. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a couple of papers today. And the first one is carrying time series momentum, a match made in heaven. This paper actually just came out in the Journal of Alternative Investments in the fall of this year. And once again, I wrote this paper with Junkai and Chao Hua He. So let's talk a little bit about this whole topic and why I think it's interesting. Uh, so one, I'd like to clarify what time series momentum is. A lot of the times people say, oh, momentum. And there is a lot of confusion between time series momentum and cross-sectional momentum. Most academic literature is about cross-sectional momentum, which is all about persistence in relative performance. In other words, winners are going to win and losers are going to continue losing. And it's typically captured by long short strategies that go long winners and short losers. And time series momentum is all about persistence in absolute performance. So if the markets are going up today, they'll continue going up tomorrow. If they go down today, they'll continue going down tomorrow. So time series momentum and cross-sectional momentum are similar, but they're also distinctly different from each other. And time series momentum is often used in the same breath as trend following. Exactly. So time series momentum and trend are the same thing. Time series momentum is an academic term for trend. And then if you look at carry trade, carry trade is a very popular strategy. It's really all valuation-based. So if you look at some kind of ratio that makes sense, it could be like maybe P ratio in stocks. In case of futures markets, it can be basis between spot and futures contract. And what's also interesting about futures markets is that with futures markets, it doesn't really matter what the underlying is. You can actually define carry trade very simply by looking at this futures basis. It's kind of like a universal predictor across all asset classes. And actually, I wrote my dissertation on that. But anyway, so the question we asked was, when you look at carry, we know that carry or basis are predictive of future performance across multiple asset classes. There are lots of research on that. And the question is, if carry is positive, then the asset is more likely to continue going up. And then the question becomes, is it more likely that you're going to see more positive trends in that market? And if that's the case, it's quite likely that if you condition the trend signal on the sign of basis, you're more likely to build a system that's going to be consistent and profitable. So that's kind of what the thesis that we have. So it may be worthwhile for you to spend a little bit of time describing the theoretical basis for carry. So you've got a market where the term structure of futures is in backwardation and or the term structure is contango. What dynamics are happening there that cause us to expect positive or negative returns on the front month, given the term structure there? So there's actually a lot of research on that that's been published in commodity markets. For example, there's a Fama in French 1988 paper that talks about metals. And in their case, they're really trying to tie this relationship to the convenience yield. So in the case of metals, for example, if you could copper, for example, if everything is going well, if the business, you're in expansion, then you anticipate that copper is going to be high demand. And if the copper is high demand, there's actually a very significant value of having physical copper because it's used for production. And therefore, 
because of this very high convenience yield, you're going to see basis going up. And that's why there's this business cycle effect when basis, when convenience yield is high, when basis is high, you expect that future returns are going to be positive. So that's kind of the discussion that Fama and French so when had basis in their is paper. high relative to the front month future. Well, typically what happens is that whether you look at basis of front month versus underlying or further out versus front month and so on, those tend to be predictive future returns, maybe for slightly different horizons, but in general, high basis means higher return. So we typically say that carry is the return you expect on holding an asset if the price doesn't change. Exactly. So in bonds, it's the coupon of the bond. In stocks, it's the dividend on the stocks. In commodities, it's the roll yield on the commodity as the front month moves or as whatever the commodity, whatever contract you own becomes more mature. So it rolls up or it rolls down the curve. And depending on what the slope of the curve, then the expected yield on that is positive or negative. That's exactly right. Just to clarify. When you look at basis, what I like about basis in the futures markets is that you don't need to worry as much about what it's related to. Like, for example, as you mentioned earlier, in stocks, it would be dividend yields. But you can actually, you know that basis in the futures markets for equity is going to be roughly expected dividend yield minus the risk-free rate. Or in case of fixed income, you talked about coupons, that's a similar relationship. Or in case of foreign exchange markets, it would be interest rate differential. So what's nice about using futures market for carry research, you can actually, instead of looking at multiple different ratios that are meaningful in different asset class, you can actually come up with unified return predictor you can use across all asset classes. And actually, my first dissertation paper was exactly on that. I was showing that futures basis is a universal predictor across all asset classes. Nice. It's great because it reflects the expectation and not the historical value of those variables. Exactly. It's forward-looking. Good. You've got this carry signal. You've got, I think you measure basis as the difference between spot and the front month contract. Is that right? Or are you measuring between front and back month? Between front and back. Front and back. Okay. Gotcha. You construct a thesis for why positive carry assets are more likely to result in persistence of positive trends and vice versa in general. That's exactly right. So a couple of things to add to that. So you asked the question, how do I define basis, whether it's the difference between front month and spot or further out contract and spot or further out and front month. And when you look at the literature on commodities, it's really hard to talk about underlying or spot. That's why in commodity literature, typically the front month is considered to be the spot. And that's what's used for analysis a lot of the time. So we use the similar methodology for other asset classes as well, because it's unifying across all assets. It makes it easier for us to apply the same methodology for all asset classes. Nice. And so just how powerful is this relationship where if you condition time series momentum on carry, first of all, what was your thesis for why this pairing should be effective? And then what did you find in practice? So let's just say that if in commodity markets, for example, basis tends to be negative basis is negative, you actually expect that returns are going to be pretty poor in commodity markets. And that's exactly what we've seen. I remember there were some articles or opinions in Wall Street Journal Financial Times last year, 
about how investors were thinking about walking away from only commodity investing because they did not believe in long-term positive returns in commodities. And the reason for that is really because of negative carry. So what happens is that if you see high negative carry, you expect to see that a very significant downward trend that comes from this negative carry. And because of that, it's much more likely to see profitable signals that are short rather than long in commodities, for example. Whereas if you look at some other asset classes, such as equities, there's an opposite behavior. So the carry tends to be positive and you expect markets to go up. And that's why loan bias in equity markets does make sense when you develop a time series momentum strategy. And that's exactly what we observed. So actually, if you look at our results, we found that when you condition signals of trend on the size of basis, which is a very, very simple signal, we can see very significant improvement in the sharp ratios of those strategies. So let me just clarify a little bit about what you're looking at. So TSMOM is a trend strategy that gives equal notion allocation across all the strategies, across all the instruments. And TSMOM V is a strategy that was recommended by Toby Moskowitz in his 2012 paper that takes exposure in each market that's normalized to 40%. So in other words, it's equal risk-weighted allocation across all instruments. And what you can find here is that one, risk-weighting signals tends to help. You can see that sharp ratios are higher. 0.56 is higher than 0.25. 0.73 is higher than 0.43. What we can also find is that conditional signals on the sign of basis improves performance. And then the question becomes, if you're an investor, is that a good strategy? Because if you have a strategy that has a higher sharp ratio, but it tends to hurt you when the stock market struggles, for example, if you look at volatility selling, it does great during good periods, but then it really crushes you during bad periods. And for example, if you look at Q1 of this year, there were actually a lot of volatility selling strategies that went out of business because they blew up because of the bad market environment. So we wanted to make sure that in this case, when we recommend a strategy that conditions the signal of trend on the sign of basis that would not have a similar behavior of good performance during good periods, but really bad performance during bad periods. So that's why we did additional analysis to evaluate performance by different macro environments. Gotcha. So did you also review the paper, obviously from Koigen on global carry? So what I think many investors would be, or listeners will be surprised about is, because typically carry is perceived as a pro-cyclical strategy because it's typically implemented on currencies and in currencies it does manifest as relatively pro-cyclical. In other words, it hurts when it hurts to hurt for people who typically own an equity heavy portfolio, a carry portfolio will typically do poorly when, or like a traditional currency carry portfolio will typically do poorly when equities are also doing poorly. And of course, when you diversify across all the major sectors, so into bonds and equities and commodities and currencies and volatility, notably, that you find that that actually isn't the case, that the carry strategy doesn't really have any major pro-cyclical tendencies. So I guess based on that, you went into this expecting that pairing carry with trend across a diversified CTA universe would not introduce any meaningful pro-cyclicality. Is that what you observed? Well, I actually had a different suspicion. My suspicion was there would be some pro-cyclicality. So if you look at, I'm well familiar with Corrigan paper, it came out in the Journal of Financial Economics. 
And actually, I was very fortunate because Ralph Koyajin was one of my advisors, my PG advisors, and he gave me some really valuable feedback on my dissertation. So what really happens is that, in general, when you look at carry trade, carry trade tends to be pro-cyclical. And there are reasons for that. Like, There's a lot of work done on FX carry. There's, for example, a paper by Nick Rusana from Wharton. It's called Commodities and Carry, A Tale of Two Cities. And actually, what he does in that paper, he shows that he actually links FX and commodities, which is very interesting. He talks about countries that tend to export commodities and those that tend to import. And he shows how there's a link with the carry trade through transportation. But anyway, that's very fascinating to me. But anyway, so all that to say is that when I was looking at the results, my actually expectation was that if I condition the sign of trend, if I condition signal of trend on the sign of basis, I was actually worried that we're going to see more procyclicality. And I did not find that. I was looking at what was driving that. You can actually find that, for example, commodities tend to be very helpful for the behavior of the strategy. For example, when the market crashes, commodities tend to struggle as well. And this strategy tends to short commodities. And also another example is fixed income. So fixed income tends to have positive carry. So And it does tend to help to have loan bond exposure during crisis. So when you start looking at asset by asset, it actually does make sense why this strategy performs better during time of crisis. But I was actually quite worried because when you take a simple carry implementation, it tends to behave poorly during time of crisis. But typically, carry strategies focus on FX. And especially if you include emerging market FX, then that certainly enhances the procyclicality. But I just want to show the result because I think they're pretty striking. So if you look at expansion and recession, you can see that the unconditional time series momentum strategy performs slightly better during recessions. The sharp ratio goes from up from 0.56 to 0.61, but performance of the conditional strategy is, is much stronger during recessions. You can see that the sharp ratio goes up from 0.68 to 1.05. And when you start looking at different stages of recessions and expansions, you can actually find that the strategy performs extremely well during early recession. And that's when the stock market struggles the most. So the strategy tends to add value during those periods when clients care the most about performance. That's a really interesting observation. Just thinking through the character of the carry strategy that we run, it performed extremely well, I think counterintuitively, in the very early part of the March downturn. And then as markets began to recover, it began to roll over and do relatively poorly. So it's sort of early recession versus late recession, given that the most recent recession played out over a matter of weeks. It's hardly a prototypical example, but it is interesting to see that it sort of, it does map anecdotally to the average profile. I think you have a really good implementation of the carry trade strategy based on what you described. So that's very impressive. All right. So those are the primary findings for the carry and time series momentum. Do you, in practice, I know you, I mean, your role is actually as head of research or you play a very large role in selecting managers for the efficient portfolio. So to what extent do you use the type of research that you do? Like, are you looking through the returns of your underlying managers to see the degree to which they are loading on or exposed to? 
the timeshares of Minimum or Carry or whatever, or in your experience, are more managers now gaining exposure to Carry, either unconditionally or conditioned on trend? What is the adoption curve look like for these signals? So let me talk a little bit more about the fish and how we approach manager selection. We have a fantastic CIO, Chad Martins. I think he's very thoughtful. And I work very closely with Chad in determining which tools we're going to use to evaluate managers. So historically, we've done a lot of work on operational due diligence, investment due diligence. We've done a lot of qualitative analysis. We actually have a whole section of qualitative factors that we use to evaluate managers. But probably in the last six years, we decided that we're going to invest more effort to understand what drives managers' performance, not based on what they tell us, but based on what their performance demonstrates. So we developed a lot of in-house factors, whether it's trends or carry or value or cross-sectional momentum of all to selling. And we use those factors to evaluate managers. So almost like a return-based style analysis. but Exactly. For- it's return-based. And it's interesting because sometimes it's a great validation. For example, we remember a few years ago, we had a manager who had no stock exposure. And we run an analysis and it shows that the loading on stocks is, times the moment on stocks was zero. It's like, great, that validates what they told us. But sometimes this analysis is used to ask deeper questions. For example, we talk to a manager and the manager says that they don't have, they explain their methodology in a certain way. But then we see a certain loading, for example, maybe a loading on a carry. And we say, well, help us understand why you seem to be exposed to carry. And then we start talking about the details of their methodology. And what happens is that sometimes managers don't even realize themselves that they have that exposure, particularly their discretionary managers. But it's extremely helpful to do this analysis, one, for us to understand what drives managers' performance, but also to have those better informed conversations with managers about their strategies. And then are you trying to put together an ensemble of strategies that broadly diversifies across, or you're trying to minimize the concentration in any particular tenor of the trend term structure or any carry versus value versus vol selling, et cetera? Do you think through some of that in the assembly of the portfolio? When you look at managers, it's really difficult to target allocation across underlying strategies, such as trend or carry or exposure by sectors, because they do change over time. And it's really hard to find a manager without any type of sell drift. So it does change over time. For example, if you look at trend managers as a whole, I think what we've seen since the global financial crisis is that in general, it's been a tough period for trend. And because of that, the holding periods have gotten longer. So in the look-back periods as well have gotten longer. So managers don't want to get chopped by the actions of the central banks, for example. And also, we've also seen that quite a few managers have been expanding to some other complementary strategies such as carry. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad to have carry in the portfolio. I think it does improve risk-adjust performance. If you're careful about how you implement it, if you care about sizing it the right way, it doesn't hurt crisis alpha of the portfolio. But with that said, I think it's extremely difficult just to target exposure of the overall portfolio to those basic strategies. So what we do, we actually try to put managers in some groups. At a high level, we think about managers as trend managers. We have long-term traditional trends, long-term differentiated trend. Those would be trend plus carry and so on. 
Then we have short-term trends. And actually, my second paper is exactly going to be about short-term traders. Then we have global macro managers who tend to be discretionary and they tend to take long-term position based on some macroeconomic analysis that they do, certain themes. And finally, we have unique diversifiers who tend to be maybe some market specialists in case of commodities, like, for example, could be grains and softs and soybeans, or we can have some effect specialists as well. So what we try to do, actually try to put managers in the appropriate category, and then we try to control the allocation between those groups. And we try to be very careful about style drift of each manager within the group as well. So that's kind of how we try to allocate to the portfolio level. So we don't necessarily try to be very precise about allocation across underlying simple strategies, but we try to be more thoughtful about how do we actually allocate risk across different groups of managers and within those groups of managers as well. Gotcha. So obviously a combination of qualitative and quantitative analysis to determine which group a manager belongs to, and probably you revisit that every now and then to ensure no meaningful style drift or you don't need to reclassify a strategy. And then you achieve your diversification by ensuring that the groups are diversifying the portfolio in the way that you're targeting and not relying on any sort of look-through quantitative structure within the portfolio. That's right. I mean, we still do the look-through to be aware of what's happening at the same time. We don't target it explicitly. It's kind of like when you look at the question of correlations, for example, there could be some instant correlations over one-day period. And you can look at correlation between any two managers based on their underlying exposure. So one is, for example, long stocks, another one short stocks, you know, they're going to be negatively correlated that day. And I think it's really valuable information to have if your horizons are short. At the same time, when we build portfolios, we tend to think about longer horizons. And when you look at longer horizons, instant correlations are not as valuable as longer term correlations. So that's why in our case, we need to be a little bit more careful about not overreacting too much about instant or shorter term observation. Think about more about balancing portfolio in the long run. So that's actually a really good point, And it dovetails into some questions around how investors are using trend following and trend following funds of funds. Or You're not a fund of fund, but you've got, I guess you sort of bundle a large number of strategies into managed account. Correct. So our business has evolved over time, but since our inception, we have been focused on building customized solutions for investors. So even though we have a flagship fund, at the same time, we have quite a few customized solutions as well, because what we're seeing is that investors are becoming more sophisticated and they have some very specific needs in their portfolios that they hope to meet with a CTA bucket. So in certain cases, it can be crisis alpha. It's a very popular investment objective for trend portfolios. In some other cases, it can be absolute return. And what we try to do, we try to work with clients to understand what their needs are. And we try to figure out which managers would be the right fit given their objective and also what type of techniques we can apply on top of that through portfolio management techniques, through different fee structures to meet that particular objective. We put a lot of effort into fees. For example, we have a patent in a certain fee structure that's quite innovative. And we also do a lot of fee netting. For example, as you know, there's always this risk that if you have a portfolio of two managers, one makes money, another one loses money, then 
the client ends up getting the negative return and pays performance fee to one of the managers. So we try to go away from that by incorporating netted fee structure when managers only get paid when the client makes money. So it's a great alignment of incentives. We also have quite a few portfolio management techniques. I think you've seen my paper on volatility targeting at the portfolio level. We also have some portfolio management techniques for allocating within a bucket as well. So what we hope to do, we hope to understand what clients need, then find the managers that are going to meet their objective and also apply some portfolio management techniques, some fee structures that can actually help us get closer to meeting that need. So I'm curious about how management or investor needs or objectives have evolved over the last few years, because we've had such a strange environment of really rapid moves. So the the crises for which investors have often sought crisis alpha have historically evolved over a period of months or quarters. And in the last few years, what we've observed, of course, is that these crises play out over days and weeks. And historically, many CTAs are not really designed to provide crisis alpha over crises that have play out over days and weeks, but are very nicely designed to protect against or offset or diversify against crises that play out over months and quarters. So how have you, A, seen investor expectations evolve over the last few years And how have you seen managers evolve and evolved your own process in response to these evolving or adaptive market conditions? It's interesting because I think in general, sophisticated investors understand CTAs pretty well. And we actually really enjoy talking to sophisticated investors because we can actually show them, hey, here's what's happening in the markets. Here are the positions of the managers. Here's how they're reacting to the moves in the markets. And this is the outcome. Sometimes it could be a good outcome. Sometimes it can be a bad outcome, but it's really important that when we evaluate managers and when we evaluate ourselves is that we actually get what we expect to get in that particular environment. So we don't have control over the environment, but we have control over how we position our portfolio to benefit from certain environments. So now when we're looking at how managers adjust, we've seen lots of adjustments. I think that overall, we've seen some really interesting policy by the central banks since the global financial crisis. If you look at the stock market, it's really become between March of 2009 and maybe beginning of 2018, I think it was a risk-free asset. It would not go down in any type of retracement was very short. And I think what managers have learned is that if you trade in the same way that you used to 10 years ago, you would get chopped. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of adaptation by the managers So I think some of them have lengthened their look-back periods to not be as sensitive to market moves. We've also seen that managers started adding some additional strategies, such as I talked about carry, maybe some other complementary strategies. And I think that on the one hand, it's a positive thing. I think managers should evolve through the market. At the same time, there are also some risks associated with that. For example, when we look at Q1 of this year, trend performed pretty well on average. Whereas on average, carry trade got hurt. So some of the pure managers who did not have carry trade actually, on average, have performed better than those who did have carry trade. Another point is that I think at the portfolio level, we try to be well diversified. If you look at what happened in Q1 of this year, it was really hard to find a 
trend manager that performed well trading equities because the markets made all-time highs at the end of February, and then you saw the largest five-day drop since October 87, the largest 20-day drop since the Great Depression. It was a really violent move in the equity markets, and most trend managers lost on that reversal. But at the same time, some shorter-term managers were able to recover faster. They were able to reverse their positions, and that's why I think my paper about short-term trend is so timely, because I think it does help a lot in providing crisis alpha. And also what we found is that if managers had exposure to some other less popular assets, such as commodities, and I'd like to kind of put in perspective, it was really tough period in commodities for the last probably six years, since 2014. There were very few trends in commodities, but we kept our exposure to that asset class. And I think that really helped because there were some significant trends in commodities in Q1 of this year and being well diversified across timeframes and assets actually helped our portfolio perform better. Okay, that makes sense. So a lot of managers have moved to longer term trends, but you've got a recent paper. Actually, you wrote this with Larry Swedro, who's a friend of ours. And I guess this is introducing or just reinforcing the value of also considering short-term trends. That's right. So if you look at academic literature on trend, so the the first paper came out in 2012, was a paper by Toby Moskowitz and a few other co-authors, and he introduced a 12-month momentum strategy that's based on monthly returns. He voted adjusted exposure so that 40% was targeted in each market. In other words, equal risk allocation across different markets. And then there was another paper by in JPM paper in 2017, Hearst et al., that actually introduced one-month and three-month momentum strategies. However, overall, time series momentum is really, I guess, it gets ignored in, in the literature. And the question we ask was, that, well, what happens if you go beyond monthly returns? Is there a benefit? And one obvious potential benefit, well, if you're able to come up with a short-term strategy, there's additional diversification that comes with that. And if you're able to capture the diversification without sacrificing the crisis alpha benefit of uh, trend, that could be extremely valuable for institutional investors. So just for clarity, that's pretty much exactly what we found. The Moskowists and the Hearst paper, they both only use monthly level data, right? They published on monthly level data. Yes. To be careful, so the look back period was monthly. That's right. So Moskowitz used a Garch model to estimate volatility and Garch was applied to daily data. So even though the signals were generated using monthly returns, there was some daily data used for position sizing. The statistics they reported were at monthly granularity. So you weren't able to see the intramonth effects of higher frequency observation, which obviously makes a large difference, and especially in the current environment. That's right. I also want to be careful because there was another paper by also Hearst et al. 2014 paper that actually talks about the impact of rebalancing. So they actually do look at certain look periods, but they say, well, if you rebalance more often, what's going to happen? And they found that before you consider fees, more frequent rebalancing tends to help. And actually in our paper, when we found the benefits of short-term trend, we asked the question, well, is it all driven by the rebalancing frequency benefits or there's some other reasons? And what we found actually there are some other reasons were more important. So what were the results and what were some of the reasons? I'm going to summarize some results because we've done a lot of analysis. But once again, this paper is available 
in the journal Portfolio Management. It's coming out in November of this year. So we've done a lot of additional work, but this is a quick summary. So if you look at, we've replicated 12 months, three months and one month momentum using daily returns. So 252 day look back period is roughly 12 months. 63 day look back period is roughly three months and 21 day look back period is roughly one month. And then we hold it either one month, which is 21 days or five days, which is roughly one week. And we look at two strategies. Panel A shows the strategy that allocates equally across all the instruments. And panel B uses equal risk allocation, just like in the paper by Moskowitz across all the assets. And what we find, once again, for the most part, trend does well across different asset classes, across different timeframes. And in general, volatility targeting does improve performance, except there's one incident when you look at monthly return and in equities, you can see slightly worse result. But for the most part, volatility targeting does add value. What you can notice here is that when you compare our short-term strategy, which is 21.5, it tends to perform better than a typical one-month strategy, 21.21, whether it's panel A or panel B. So the hope is that if short-term strategy is actually superior to one month, and if correlations are high enough, it could be actually a good substitute for the traditional one-month strategy. I see. And when you look at correlations, you can actually, I mean, of course, correlations are pretty intuitive. For example, you can see that correlation of short-term momentum and one month is pretty high, 0.6, and then declines, goes down to 0.21. When you look at correlation of short-term momentum and 12 months momentum, those are very typical patterns. But based on two facts, one is short-term trend tends to perform better than one-month momentum and correlation are relatively high. Our hypothesis was, well, it's possible that short-term trend would be a good substitute for the one-month momentum strategy. So we actually looked at benchmark portfolio that was introduced in Hearst et al. 2017 that gives equal weight to 12 months, three months, and one month. And then we try to introduce short-term momentum by either taking complete weight of one month, which is balance one strategy, or splitting equally the allocation to the one-month strategy between one month and short-term momentum. And the reason why we look at both of those is because we want to be extremely careful with data mining. So we want to see validation in a couple of different implementations. And we ask a few questions. One is, is performance getting better? And we want to be careful that we consider transaction costs. The second thing is, are we losing the crisis alpha benefit of trend if we introduce short-term trend? And the third question is really inspired by this data mining concern. If we see an improvement, what drives it? We want to understand why short-term trend improves performance of trend strategies. So those are three key questions we try to answer. And what we found is that before we consider fees, balanced portfolio tend to be superior to the benchmark standard portfolio of Hearst. And you can also see that that happens without sacrificing correlation to S&P. They pretty much stay roughly the same, maybe slightly more negative. So we're able to improve performance without sacrificing crisis alpha. And then the question becomes, if that's the case, what's the impact of fees? And we looked at a couple of different versions of fees. We start with some more conservative costs, and we took them from the Hearst paper. And what we found is that if costs are conservative, there's actually no benefit of short-term trends. But we would also argue that even though conservative costs are appropriate for typical strategies, when you look at short-term strategies, typically those managers tend to take execution very seriously. They often use 
co-located servers. They often use specialized algos to reduce costs. And that's why we also looked at another set of assumptions with more optimistic costs, able to find that in that case, short-term trend still substantially improves performance of traditional trend strategies. So our conclusion here is short-term trend has the potential to improve performance of trend strategies without sacrificing crisis alpha benefits, but this conclusion highly depends on the quality of execution. So I wonder, so I look at these these results and I say, even at the higher cost expectation level, adding diversity to your trend signals doesn't hurt. The sharp ratio is essentially the same. You've got 0.71737474. So it doesn't hurt. And then you sort of lean on some of the literature on ensembles about the fact that the benefit of an ensemble doesn't really show up in the sharp ratio, but it does show up in the standard error of terminal wealth. And I think all things equal, if I get the same sharp ratio and I get a narrower distribution of terminal wealth because of the ensemble benefits, then even with the higher cost expectations, I think I'd still skew to using the ensemble over than the single specification. Do you have similar intuition there? No, I think that's exactly right. I think in general, I think we believe in diversification. So as I mentioned earlier in Q1, we saw a great example that it was better to be diversified across timeframes and assets. And I'm a huge believer in ensembles. I'm a huge believer in diversification across parameter sets. So from that perspective, for sure, I do prefer having a more balanced portfolio. And I think that's really what sets us apart from most trend and even CTA programs is that we tend to be much more diversified across different types of managers and across different timeframes, across different markets. We're strong believers in ensembles. And I think you're right that in this case, adding short-term trend does improve diversity across parameters. Beautiful. So the third question was, why? Why, why is this? So you actually looked at, we had two hypotheses and actually it was really great because Larry knows everybody, so he just emailed Cliff Asnes and said, hey, Cliff, what do you think about this paper? And Cliff said, oh, let me just talk to my academics. So he actually asked a couple of them, and they gave some really good feedback. And their feedback was, well, maybe it's all driven by the rebalancing effect, because they wrote a paper about that that came out in 2014. So we actually looked at that, and what we found that rebalancing did not really add value after transaction costs. So even though there were some significant potential benefits before you consider costs, after transaction costs, there's no benefit. And then we said, okay, so is it possible that performance gets better because of some diversification benefits? And what we found, and I'm going to show you the slide, when you look actually at the worst performance for the 12 months strategy, you can see that in the first column, you can see there's 10 worst instances. On average, the strategy was down 7.85%. And on average, neither three months or one-month momentum made money during those periods. By contrast, you can see that short-term momentum tends to make money and makes money more consistently than the other strategies. So our conclusion here was that the reason why short-term trend improves performance of trend strategies because actually it's a really great diversifier to the other strategies and in particular to the very popular 12-month momentum strategy. Yeah, so I love it. So if I remember back to the chart where you showed the correlation between the different strategies. I want to say that the correlation between 252.21 and 
21.5 was, was it 0.26 or 0.36? Yeah, it was roughly 0.2, yep. So that obviously captures some of it. But I think what I'm seeing here is that actually the correlation when you just observe returns in the tails may be even lower between the That's exactly right. And we actually, the paper has more details on that because the referee asked us to do it by asset class. So actually done it by individual asset class. We looked at 12 worst months in equities, 12 worst months in fixed income, effects, commodities, and we got very similar results. Awesome. So I just wanted to back up. And so when the folks at AQR suggested that it might be due to rebalancing, do you mean the rebalancing premium, like gamma scalping, vol harvesting, that kind of stuff, or some other effect? So they wrote a paper about the impact of rebalancing. And in that paper, they said, let's look at monthly rebalancing, weekly rebalancing, and daily rebalancing. And they were actually showing that more frequent rebalancing tends to produce better results. And I don't remember all the details, but my theory is that the reason why rebalancing tends to help is because of better diversification. Here's a very simple example. So let's say I have two investments and they're very similar. They have the same odds of making money. Let's say it's 50-50. And let's just say that one of them just happens to be lucky and the second one just happens to be unlucky. So if you don't rebalance between those two, then your variance, expected variance could be higher given the same expected return because you give disproportionately high weight to the first investment that happened to be lucky. Which compounds. Yeah, if you don't rebalance. But if you rebalance, you get the same expected return, but your variance goes down because you're better diversified across those two investments. Does it make sense or can you clarify that? I'm writing a paper on the rebalance premium and futures specifically for risk parity strategies. And so I'm just wondering to what extent they were leaning on that effect. And I don't know if you saw the new paper. I think it came out of Boston University. Corey Hofstein shared it with me, and I think he just tweeted on it a couple of days ago. But the authors, they introduced a new explanatory variable. So they looked at the Rob Arnott or Research Affiliates fundamental indexing methodology, and they were wondering the degree to which the excess returns were due to the characteristics, like the loadings on value and size and some of the other classic factors. Or was it just due to this rebalancing effect? And what they found was that the entire premium was explained by this rebalancing premium. And when you back that out, there was no remaining. The intercept term flattened. And so I was wondering, that because there's a lot of an increasing cacophony of discussion about the size of this rebalancing premium and in an environment where risk-free rates are at 05 or 70 basis points, then a 1% or 2% rebalancing premium is a really substantial boost to expected returns. So I think maybe that's some of this research. I was just wondering whether that's what you refer to for rebalancing explanatory variable, but I'm not sure it's exactly the same. So, I mean, Adam, I know that you think very deeply about lots of different topics. And I think I know that you and Corey, you guys have done quite a bit of work on rebalancing. You guys know more about it than I do. So in my case, I just compared performance of those strategies, but I think you're definitely thinking more deeply about this issue of rebalance than I do. All good. Well, it sounds like something that we can carry on offline with some case examples. Yeah, sounds good. But okay, so you've 
this is the short-term momentum. And then the third paper that you, and I think we went back and forth on quite a bit actually, was this one on how to think about allocating across managers. And there were a couple of different things I really liked about this. So one of them is the Monte Carlo type experiment that you did, which I want to make sure that we cover. And then just in general, the diagonalization and the sort of cluster-based hierarchical covariance estimation and how do you use that in portfolio formation, which I thought was great. So why don't you walk us through what the thesis was here? So I need to give a lot of credit to other people. And actually, so this whole research paper was inspired by Adam Duncan from Cambridge Associates. I was supposed to give a presentation at Quant Minds Americas last September. And it was supposed to be a presentation about portfolio management with machine learning. So I called Adam and said, hey, what would be an interesting topic to explore? And he said, well, why don't you just look at this HRP approach by Marcus Lopez de Prado? And I knew of that approach before, but I didn't really look at all the details. So all the credit really goes to Adam for inspiring this idea. And this paper, by the way, just came out in the Journal of Financial Data Science in June of this year. So if you want to look at the details, go there and it's all publicly available now. Anyway, so, and also when we talk about the simulation framework, I need to give credit to other people as well. And I'll do it when, when we get there. Okay. Anyway, so when you look at so the HRP approach of Marcus Lopez de Prado, I think it's a really fantastic approach. I know that it was published in the Journal of Portfolio Management 2016 paper. And also, I believe Marcus included that approach in his book, Advances in Financial Machine Learning. So I actually did talk to him about my paper and he gave me some good feedback. So I appreciate that. But what Marcus, if you look at his paper in JPM, and you can look at all the details there, he was actually looking at mean variance optimization and risk period approaches. And he was actually criticizing both techniques because of high instability of returns. And he tied that to the need to invert the currents matrix. That's a well-known problem. And one way to assess that issue is to look at the condition number of the currents matrix, which is the ratio of the highest and the lowest eigenvalues. So when the condition number is high, there's high sensitivity. If condition number is low, there's low sensitivity. But the key problem really comes from the fact that all correlations are considered in building this portfolio, whether it's mean variance or risk parity. But if we consider, we say that each correlation is important, we implicitly assume that any two assets are potential substitutes for each other. And that's not necessarily how institutional investors allocate. It's more common to use a top-down approach. You say, well, I'm going to have my equity portfolio. I'm going to use my fixed income portfolio. I'm going to use some hedge funds with CTAs and so on. So what investors really do, they say, well, we're going to ignore a lot of the correlations and we're going to focus on some of the more important correlations within different asset classes. So what I like about the HRP approach of Marcus Lopez de Prado is that he was able to impose this top-down framework and focus on more important correlations by applying tree clustering technique. So the high level, that's what I think is the best concept that I think he came up with is to come up with a way to overcome the issue of inverting covariance matrices and apply a top-down framework. Got it. And just to be clear, you modified the HRP algorithm a little bit from the one that DePrado presented. You didn't use an inverse variance allocation as the final step. You used an inverse volatility. 
So let me talk to you about it. So really, in this case, I think my contribution was actually pretty modest and conceptually. I think it was not revolutionary. I think I just really tried to expand on his framework. But what was really striking is that the performance implications were very significant. So what I found that the sharp ratio went up by about 50% on average, which is really massive. Actually, so even though the changes I suggest are very simple and intuitive, it was really great to see that the performance implications were striking. What did you compare against? So you got HRP, you say an improvement of 50% relative to what? HRP. I know, but HRP compared to what? I'm sorry, I'm going to get there. So let me just talk about the change and I'll show the results as well. So really, I looked at three potential improvements. So one, in his original approach, Marcus Lopez de Prado uses sample coherence matrix, and I'm not a huge fan of sample coherence matrix. I was able to improve the estimate of the coherence matrix in two ways. One is I use exponential weighting because I believe that more recent observations are more meaningful than older observations. And also I use the typical Lidofu shrinkage as well. So basically by using exponential weighting and shrinkage, I come up with a better estimate of coherence matrix. And if you have a better estimate of the coherence matrix, you can potentially build better portfolios. So the second thing is I did not particularly like that Marcus used inverse variance approach. And conceptually, and I talk about it in my paper, is that when you look at inverse variance approach, what it does, it really tries to minimize volatility of the portfolio. And that approach is actually quite effective if you assume that all returns are the same. So for example, if you believe that returns of all stocks are the same, actually inverse variance approach is a pretty good one. However, at least in our space, it's more reasonable to assume that the sharp ratios are more comparable across assets or managers. And in that case, when you assume that sharp ratios are roughly similar to each other, then an equal to adjusted or inverse volatility approach is much more reasonable. I would compare EVA to risk parity and IVA as minimum risk approach. So the second change was we're going to allocate within the cross clusters using equal risk approach rather than minimum risk approach. And finally, there's another change I also implemented. I actually introduced volatility targeting at the portfolio level. So I think we spent a lot of time in asset allocation trying to figure out what's the right way to weigh different assets or managers. And we don't think as much about diversification across the dimension of time. And what happens, it kind of happens unintentionally. For example, if our volatility today is 20% and volatility tomorrow is 10%, we know that we took twice as much risk today than we're taking tomorrow, but it tends to float. And a typical HRP approach is not intentional about keeping risk constant across time. So what I do actually try to target volatility of 15% each period, make sure that we're diversified not only across managers, but also across the dimension of time. Nice. What did you discover in terms of all those steps? So if I understand, there's an EWMA, instead of using the sample covariance, you also applied the shrinkage, the Lodewa-Wolf shrinkage. You used inverse fall instead of inverse variance, and you volatility targeted. So if I were to decompose those five steps, which ones had the most impact and which ones ended up not having a huge impact on the outcome? That's a great question. You can actually look at my paper for all the details. What I've done, actually, I compared each of those steps individually. I said, what's the marginal impact of just improving coherence matrix? And then once we improve coherence matrix estimation, what happens if we apply EVA approach? And then what happens if we use volatility target on top of that? 
So what we actually found is that each approach was actually quite meaningful. Couldn't really say that one was the dominant one, but I would say if I were to rank them, I would say that EVA approach added quite a bit of value and also volatility targeting added quite a bit of value as well. So let me just show you the results real quick, and then I'm going to mention the simulation framework we used. So what I've done here, actually, I used portfolios of CTAs. We built portfolios of 10 managers and applied this framework. And then we created distribution of the Sharpe ratios for those portfolios. And you can see here is that on average, the Sharpe ratio goes up from 0.217 to 0.33. So it goes up by about 50%, which is quite meaningful. And if you look at different quartiles, you can actually see that all of them are getting better. So we're getting is that we're actually improving performance on average without sacrificing the tail, which is also quite impressive. If anything, actually, the tail improves a little bit. If I look at the... Exactly. In the bottom quartile, you get a, a larger boost even than you get in the top quartiles, which is nice to see. That's right. So we get better results and lower tails, lower left tail. So let me just briefly talk about this framework. So this framework was developed by Christophe Lechilek, a friend of mine who is at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. He and I wrote a couple of papers together. So we introduced this framework in our 2016 paper that got published in the Journal of Asset Management. And what we did in this paper, we just said, well, if you look at typical hedge fund studies, they tend to perform analysis in a way that's not consistent with practices of institutional investors. For example, a lot of those studies would take hundreds of hedge funds and build portfolios on them, which is not realistic. I think typically a hedge fund investor maybe would pick 5, 10, 20 hedge funds, not 400. So another example was that there was a really big problem with look-ahead bias. So typically papers would build portfolios at December using returns up to the end of December. But as you know, there are some reporting delays. And if you look at what data is available at the time of allocation decision at the end of December, you would find that you can only find returns through the end of November because they come out about mid-December. So we actually introduced this reporting delay lag in our framework. And we also did a lot of, we actually built this as a customized framework where you can customize your investment objective. You can customize your requirements of which manager might qualify for your portfolio, whether it's AUM size, length of track record, and so on. So we build this really comprehensive and customized framework that's consistent with practices of institutional investors. So that's exactly the framework we applied in this case. And you're welcome to read the original paper. You can read about the whole framework in detail. But we applied this framework and we got that, given this realistic framework that's relevant for institutional investors, performance, the improvements that I introduced improve performance by about 50% and actually improve tail risk as well. So we chatted about how you structure portfolios and practice for efficient. I'm just wondering, has any of this caused you to tweak some of the methods that you use either within the different groups of managers or across groups? Or to what extent are you leaning a little bit more quantitatively in terms of your portfolio formation as a function of this research? Or is it still just sort of experimental at this point? So I like Marcus HRP approach. I like the improvements we made, but I think the way we manage our portfolio is a little bit better. In general, when I think about approaches, I care a lot about robustness. And one of the things you find with HRP approach, it's not always stable across time either in how clusters different securities. So what I'm trying to work on is how to actually apply some of the basic concepts that are valuable from applying this top-down framework 
but also implement them in a way that's going to be robust and not sensitive from period to period. So the approach we actually use, we've been using this approach since about 2012, is actually it's a top-down framework that's pretty robust. And I think it has some of the similar components that I used in this paper, such as we like using risk parity allocations, so we apply risk parity techniques. We also like some of the volatility targeting techniques as well, so we actually control volatility or portfolio very intentionally. So I think that we pretty much already use an approach that's better than MHRP. I still want to get better. I think there's a way for us to improve the estimate of the currency matrix by using different type of shrinkage. You know, I can talk about like random matrix theory and eigenvalue clipping and so on. There are ways to actually denoise correlation matrix more effectively. So that's pretty much the direction in which I'm headed. But I'm already pretty happy with the techniques they're using to manage our portfolios because I think they make a lot of sense and they're pretty robust and they're consistent conceptually with the ideas of MHRP. So you're constantly doing research. I know that we chatted about doing something together. What is on your research docket at the moment? What are you most curious about? Adam, I would love to work on research with you. I think that I remember talking to Larry about you about a month ago and Larry said, Adam is the sharpest person he knows. He's such a sweet talker. He didn't know I would tell you that, but he just talked about that. He just thinks we're highly, I think we're highly you as well. And I like the feedback you give me on my research always. And I like the work you're doing on ensembles. And maybe there's a way for us to collaborate somehow. So I would love that. I'm working on a couple of research papers in other areas. Actually, just next week, one of my co-authors is going to present a paper that he and I are working on. And in that paper, we actually, it's a research about commodity markets. And what we show that term premia that exist in commodity markets are actually driven by the financialization in commodities that started happening about 2003, 2004. It's a really fascinating paper. We've done a lot of empirical work and we built a really nice theoretical model. So I think that paper is probably going to be the best paper I've written so far. I'm very excited. Wow. Okay. So, and I would love to come and talk to you about one of Yes, done. that'd be great. So just to continue to tease it a little bit. So you observed the general term structure of commodity futures as a function of the estimated amount of capital deployed to commodity indices. And you notice that as more financial capital is deployed to commodity indices, that it did create a change, a structural change in the term structure of the commodity futures markets? Well, let me share a couple of data points. So one data point around 2002 or so, we saw a huge jump in so-called financialization of commodities, which is that investors recognize that commodities are a distinct asset class. And they start investing commodities using loan-only indices, such as Dow Jones, Sugen Commodity Index. How do you measure that? Do you have data on the amount of money that was following the indices at each year? I do. I do have All the right, data. Cool. And what's also interesting, there's actually a paper, it was a GF paper, came out in 2014. And the paper actually reported term premium commodity markets. And it was the first paper ever that talked about term premium. And I haven't seen a single great explanation of why it exists. So that's another data point. And when my co-authors and I, we did research on commodities, what we found is that before 2002, 2003, term premium were insignificant, and then they became significant. 
Another data point, I wrote this paper about Chinese commodities. And in that paper, what we find there is no term premia in Chinese commodities. And that also makes sense because there's no financialization. So what's the mechanism? So let's say an institutional investor wants to get loan-only exposure in commodities. They purchase indices. Indices invest in index commodities. And they tend to invest in nearby spot contracts. So the prices are driven up in spot, and that, that's because of that, since the prices of nearby contracts are higher than farther out contracts, you're able to collect this premium just because of the price pressure from index investors. So we built a model, looked at empirical data, but also there's a way to validate this because if you look at the COT reports, commitment of trader reports by the CFTC, there's actually a supplemental report that starts reporting index holdings holdings of index investors start in 2012. So what we've done, we actually looked at the data and we looked at, analyzed whether higher portion of index investors results in higher term premium. And that's exactly what we found. We saw this relationship after we account for double cluster by time and commodity, we see there's a very strong positive relationship that's statistically significant. You only really notice a change in the term structure for the front month and the structure for all the other months remains much more consistent through time, but the front month relationship with the other parts of the curve, that changes most dramatically as a function of the amount of dollars or like the financialization of commodities? That's right. So really, it's really driven by the front months. And only index commodities. So if you look at non-index commodities, there's no difference. Right. Before and Another after, great it's test. the same. But if you look at index commodities, you can see that term premia insignificant and then jump and that jump is related to the is proportion of index investors in the commodity markets. Interesting. Okay. So where's that being published? Do we know yet? Well, I hope that it's gonna be a high caliber paper. So next week my co-author is gonna give a presentation at IIT. But it's probably that we'll need to partner with somebody who can help us take it to a higher tier journal. There are a couple of people that we're considering. I'm excited. I think it's going to be the best paper that I'm going to write so far, life to date. But I don't think, frankly, that I'll be able to take it to a high tier journal just with me, my co-author. I think we need to partner with somebody. Well, we'll debate all the challenges with academic publications on a different podcast. <laughs> but- Sounds good. That's great. So listen, this has been a really cool conversation. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing all these insights. And I look forward to further collaboration in the coming months. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. And Adam, I love talking to you about research and I look forward to working on research projects with you. Thank you for having me here. Likewise. All right. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. See ya. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, 
And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thank you.